Rick and Friends, Rick Madison, hence the name, I guess. Uh, we have a very special guest, and it's Lee Turner. So let me just read this uh, from Doak Sheriff Lawyers, managing partner, does uh, personal injury, public health law, and a pretty good hockey player, too. <laughs> so, um, so Lee, you were, you were this morning, actually, reading through a decision rendered on Friday, uh, and you had a chance to kind of peruse it. Can you kind of share with us what, why this is such a, a pivotal event? Yes, on Friday, uh, the British Columbia Supreme Court released a decision uh, concerning ICBC's, uh, well, I guess the provincial government's legislation. They brought in a regulation under the Evidence Act to limit the amount of expenses that an injured plaintiff in a motor vehicle accident could recover. So they put an arbitrary ceiling or cap on what people can recover. So it results in uh, a number of injured victims being unable to fully recover the expenses they need to incur in order to prove their cases. So this decision was released Friday. It was published yesterday afternoon on Monday uh, by the court on its website. So I was reading it over this morning in preparation for our interview to make sure that I had uh, the facts straight about what the judge decided. So they've declared that legislation unconstitutional and uh, contrary to administrative law principles as well. So what does this mean for, for most of us that are listening to this? Is this a, a big pushback uh, from the court system, or what does this mean? Yes, I think so. I mean, the, this, this current government tried to bring in similar changes uh, about three years ago by changing our court rules. And that was also challenged by uh, the Trial Lawyers Association of British Columbia, and they were successful in having that declared unconstitutional. And in that decision, which was rendered by our Chief Justice, Mr. Justice Hinkson, um, he did say that perhaps if the government had gone about it differently by making these changes under an existing statute, perhaps that might be a better way to go about it, although he did still express some concerns. So sure enough, once that that uh, decision of the government had been declared unconstitutional, they moved to amend legislation and tried to do the same thing. So now this was a challenge to that, and again it was struck down as being unconstitutional and in violation of administrative law. So it really, what the, what the legislation did was really discriminated against people injured in motor vehicle accidents in British Columbia. It did not apply to anyone else who suffered injury, say on the premises of another business or was otherwise injured by a tortious act of someone. Um, it only pertained to people in motor vehicle accidents, which of course benefits ICBC, and uh, which of course is our Crown uh, Corporation government-owned monopoly on auto insurance in our province. So the regulation did not treat ICBC the same way that it treated the injured plaintiffs. So they were allowed in the court's discretion to recover all of their expenses for the litigation if a plaintiff was unsuccessful. On the other hand, if a plaintiff was successful, they could lose tens of thousands of dollars that they otherwise would be entitled to because of this arbitrary legislation. Now the government has argued, and they argued in the case, that they needed to do this to save money, but it prevents plaintiffs, they save money two ways. One, they don't pay the expenses. Two, the plaintiffs can't prove their actual injuries and losses, so they don't get the proper award from the court. Right. Okay. And so, yeah, it was, it was significantly unfair to injured plaintiffs. And so it, this legislation was brought in on the premise, as was the no-fault scheme we now have as, as of May 1st, 2021, 
on the premise that the BC government, ICBC, was losing you know, a lot of money. They did start to lose money before the election when the NDP got in. There was mounting, and right before the election, I think the deficit was around a billion dollars. Interestingly enough, though, um, just before the uh, no-fault legislation was brought in May 1st, 2021, uh, the government declared a profit a month before that legislation became law, they declared a profit of nearly $2 billion. And then I just read recently that they also, this past fiscal year, uh, declared another profit of, uh, I've heard ranging numbers between $1.5 billion and $2.5 billion. Um, and, and so, of course, ICBC is supposed to be revenue neutral, right. and uh, it's to provide cost-effective auto insurance for British Columbians. And unfortunately, it appears that the injured victims that have allowed the government or ICBC to make billions of dollars in profit. And from what I've seen in other uh, media reports, the government at this point has no intention of returning those monies to either injured victims or to the motoring public. They have indicated they need them to build up their capital reserves. I mean, you're, you're a, a practicing lawyer, and, and at some point, though, does, does it not fire up fire you up that you it, it seems like just a massive injustice like that's what it feels like because of the reporting on the income and and along with this legislation that they're trying to push through like it just seems like there's a I don't know um, it, like it, it should create a more active uh, of society to to push back on this because it, it feels wrong it feels wrong on so many levels I think that for most people, unless they're in a car accident or they have someone they care about that's in a car accident, it's probably not top of mind for them. And they don't recognize how this is really going to impact them when they need that insurance the most. And for those people that find themselves in the system, they now realize that they, you know, there's all these uh, injustices where they can't afford to uh, prove their case, so they can't afford to recover the damages that they have suffered. Um, all on the premise of saving our Crown Corporation money. And it's obviously they've saved an awful lot of money, it appears, the last two years. Okay, so this decision, does this impact your practice? Does this impact the people that you're working with as clients? Like, how, how do you go forward after this decision? We're not quite sure what the government's position is going to be uh, following this decision. They may appeal the decision. There, I had heard some indication that it was their intention to appeal. Um, if they do that, there may be a stay of the effect of this decision. In other words, it's paused while the Court of Appeal gets a chance to look at this. Or the government may uh, agree to allow plaintiffs uh, in the meantime to recover their disbursements as they were able to before this legislation was enacted. We're not sure at the moment. I understand from the lawyers uh, I've heard through the Trial Lawyers Association that they're just waiting for the government's position. But uh, in my practice, certainly I have a number of uh, clients who are affected by the legislation because the government chose to make their legislation retroactive, which is also extremely unusual. So um, all of these injured plaintiffs were playing by the rules as they were at the time. And when the government brought this legislation in, uh, effective February 2021, they made it retroactive. So it applied to all existing claims. So for instance, in this decision we're talking about, one of the plaintiffs that was involved in that case had incurred 99% of their expenses 
before the legislative change. In other words, they played by the rules as they were, incurred all their expenses, and then this was brought in. So they were going to be significantly impacted by this legislation, even though it was a rule that was made to apply in the past. It would be like the federal government saying that they've decided to change the income tax rate for the last six years, and you now have a big tax bill. Right. It, it, it wasn't very fair. So, so what, what it's going to do for people now is that some of the cases that we've gone to, uh, had settlements of, we've reached agreements with ICBC to pause the reimbursement of expenses because we all knew this decision was pending. So now that the decision has come out, our intention is to go back to ICBC and say, all right, let's deal with this outstanding issue on the law as it now stands. We don't know what their position is going to be yet because this decision is so new. And, and what is the window for that? What is the window for them to start an appeal process? I believe it's 30 days they have to launch an appeal. Um, and I suspect that uh, they will be considering the decision as well to see if they think that's a prudent course for them to take. I just love the fact that they changed the goalposts through the game. Like exactly, and that's probably the best. I'm a sports metaphor guy, but it seems like that. Yeah, you just change change the outcome. Like you've you've literally changed people's lives by even pushing for this. Like it it, it would financially be devastating for a lot of families. Yeah, it, you know, if you're looking at whether you should go and see a particular medical specialist uh, to assess a particular injury you have and you know that's going to cost you between five and seven thousand dollars and you know that based on this arbitrary cap you will never recover that money do you pursue that um, you know in addition to the disbursement cap this same piece of legislation it's a regulation to the evidence act they also limited the amount of expert evidence that a plaintiff could present so they limited you to one report from three different experts in your typical case, a motor vehicle accident case. And so in serious injuries where, you know, often a plaintiff will have to see, you know, five to eight different specialists, depending on the nature of the injury. So you then have to almost prioritize or choose which injuries you're going to prove and which ones you're going to abandon. Now the court does have some discretion to allow uh, the plaintiff to apply to the court to get permission to have an extra report, but that in of itself is an expensive process that the plaintiff then has to say, do I want to spend the money on that? And maybe I will or will not be successful. From the cases I've seen so far that have done that, um, the government or the court has been um, very amenable to allowing the plaintiff to have these reports as long as they can show they're reasonable, which was already the requirement to be able to use the reports and to be reimbursed for them. That was already part of the law. The government did not need to go further and add this, but they did. So the courts seem to be, again, as, as long as plaintiff's counsel is reasonable and saying we really need this, here's why, from what I've seen, the courts are granting that. So the court did not disturb that part of the legislation. They only struck down the disbursement limit or the expense limit. Okay, so let's, let's think for a moment, these are, these are people and they're humans, and, they're, and there must be a basis for them acting in such a way. So it costs savings for the government. But on the flip side, the reports are they're, they're having these unbelievably profitable years. I, I'm just trying to be 
thinking out loud of why, because, because just from the outside looking in, it just doesn't seem like a very nice thing to do is, is even, you know, approaching this kind of legislation, but here we are. And so part of me is just kind of questioning, there has to be, if it's not cost savings, uh, you know, I'm, I'm searching for a reason why, um, you know, this would be something the government would even want. Like, why are they even doing this? If they have the money in the coffers and they have the ability to pay this out and it seems like fair, it seems equitable for all parties, why would they even continue to push? Like, I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to throw it around in my brain of why this is even here, I guess. Well, if we accept uh, their financial uh, uh, disclosure leading up to the last, to the, not the last election, the election before that, ICBC was losing money. But for those of us that have been practicing in the area for any number of years, we've seen when ICBC's been run better and when it's been run less well. And I can, and in my experience talking to counsel that I've worked with throughout the province on both the defense and the plaintiff side, we could see that decisions were being made uh, and the approach to cases by ICBC changed and that was ultimately detrimental to their best interests. So for instance, um, many years ago, ICBC would often, uh, the authority was often more localized. So the authority to settle claims, which uh, created an expediency to things. The decisions happened faster. Um, they also tended to uh, be more amenable to making reasonable offers to people early. And in my experience, that resulted in a much lower cost to ICBC per file. It makes sense. The sooner you resolve an insurance claim, sure. generally the less it costs you. But it seemed that their approach changed um, many years ago now, about 10 years ago maybe. I'm just uh, estimating that time frame. But where they became much more aggressive and uh, essentially treated most plaintiffs as if they were the ones that were responsible for the situation and often made ridiculously low offers or did not... Uh, help people as much as they could in terms of their recovery to help them get better sooner. Instead, there was a uh, sort of a miserly approach to providing assistance to injured people and then making uh, you know, ridiculously low offers to people. And that just extended these cases out and it increased the cost of all the cases exponentially. And if you, you know, usually as a plaintiff's lawyer, we have to make sure we understand our client's injuries and we have to prove what their losses are. So we will go out and, and assemble that information and present it. And if it settles shortly after that, then that's probably the most efficient way to do it. However, if ICBC says, no, we're going to make you a very low offer, or we're not going to provide benefits and your client's going to develop chronic pain or things are going to carry on, then you get to a trial or close to a trial. Well, you have to reassemble updated information and prepare for trial. That's very expensive. So often cases would settle on the courthouse steps, so to speak, after the maximum amount of expense had been incurred, after the plaintiff had gone without proper treatment for a significant period of time, their injuries were worse, their losses were higher, and then from what we were hearing in the media, ICBC would blame the plaintiffs. 
but that approach changed and, it, and you could see with that the the efficiency really dropped the cost per file really increased and I think they got themselves into a situation where they were losing money and I think that's why they brought it in many people tried on both sides to offer proposals about how things could be done more efficiently to save the system while still allowing injured people to be properly compensated but that seemed to fall on deaf ears and instead they've resorted to tactics like bringing in this change to the Supreme Court rules, then bringing in a change to the Evidence Act, and just artificially limiting plaintiffs only in motor vehicle cases. But even having done that, like I say, before bringing in the no-fault regime, they had already made, by their reports, you know, about a $2 billion profit. So in my opinion, that money should have been there for the people that were injured, rather than going in to build up government reserves. So a lot of people were excited when they got checks back from the ICBC. Like that this was a big deal. You got a check. Wasn't really expecting it. And I think during that time, you know, they were really pushing. I, I saw a lot of the media. I pay attention to marketing and all that kind of stuff. And I, I was listening to the messages saying, here's what we're going to do. This is going to be great. We're going to save, uh, you know, British Columbians. 20% or something on their on their insurance. As a result, we're going to give you this money back. And and anyone who is kind of a little bit of a jaded eye towards that <laughs> might have said, I question this. So what is no fault for, for those that are listening that have heard about no fault? And, and maybe, you know, they've been obviously haven't been in an accident or had to even be working with the system in any way. What does no fault mean? mean to them if, if you haven't been in an accident or you have what is that what what train is coming down the tracks for you all right well it's probably easy to to uh contrast it with what we had before no fault and then I'll explain so before no fault we had a hybrid tort system and uh legislative system i suppose where certain benefits were prescribed by legislation uh where regardless of whose fault it was there were certain benefits available to everyone involved in the car accident. But you were entitled to be fully compensated under our tort system, which is the common law, which is the law made by the courts. So whatever your loss was as an individual, and you had to prove it, you had to go to court before an independent trained judge and prove your case. Uh, and ICBC would bring their lawyer and, and in that adversarial system, I believe you would get to uh, a reasonable result. And so that person would be fully compensated for them. In a no-fault system, um, it's more like, uh, you know, there's a chart and you get so much, depending on what happens to you. And, and, it, and both parties, both the person that caused the accident and the innocent victim, are entitled to the same compensation. The compensation is markedly lower in the no-fault system. And most people will receive none or nominal compensation for their injuries. There are benefits that are called by ICBC enhanced benefits when in reality those benefits are much less than what they were before they made that change for most people. They've increased the higher end uh, of certain things that virtually no one ever applies for. The bulk of the in motoring public who's injured is getting much less. So um, the, yeah, and that's, so they've sold it on this enhanced care. And in my experience and, and in talking with other counsel and other service providers who um, render services to the injured people and are paid by CBC, 
the administration has grown significantly. The amount of paperwork and reports and follow-ups that are needed to get approvals and to get paid is incredible. And so, in my opinion, the system is anything but enhanced care. So you're going to get um, less benefits. It's not tied to the market rate. It's tied to an artificial rate set by ICBC. Before they made these changes, although the benefits were also set by ICBC, any shortfall you would receive in your tort claim. So you would be made whole. And that's the principle of tort is that you would be put in the place that you were in before the wrong occurred as best as that can be done by money. So you would be made whole. In the current system, you know, even for catastrophically injured people, they're getting significantly less than they would have based on a court award. So the people that are the most tragically injured are still undercompensated. And um, there is another case before the courts right now that's being, uh, that the trialers have just commenced recently where they are challenging the constitutionality also of the no-fault scheme. And they have that plaintiff, the representative plaintiff in that case, is an example of someone who's been very seriously injured. He's a practice, he was a practicing lawyer in Victoria. And uh, the maximum benefits allowed on the no-fault scheme are still inadequate. And from the report I saw, ICBC's answer to that was, well, just use whatever we give you for your other damages and you can top up the inadequate benefits we're giving you. And so, you know, that is being challenged as well. And I'm, I'm grateful to be a member of the Trial Lawyers Association of British Columbia because they do take on cases like this. That's part of, that's part of their mandate is to make sure that people have access to justice. And uh, so they're, they're, they're taking the government on, on that as well. So one of the things that uh, you and I were having a discussion about no fault, and, and I was asking you questions because I didn't quite understand, well, A, a narrative, and B, <laughs> what was truly happening. And you said, well, my advice to you, Rick, is don't get injured. Like, really? And, and you were saying that in seriousness. But what's interesting to me is just from the, the pure standpoint of if, if I'm going to you, ICBC, to figure out what check to write, so you, you figure out the check to write and you write me the check, there seems to be a conflict of interest from the standpoint of ICBC. Like you're rendering the decision and because it affects you. That seems to be somewhat on, on the leaning towards deferential, I guess, uh, to ICBC. Is that, is that, am I suggesting that's correct or? I'm a strong believer in access to an independent court. I mean, I, I think that the system we had, although it's not perfect and no system is, I think our adversarial system going before an independent uh, legally trained judge is the best way to get to a fair result. Having the person who is responsible for payment decide what you get and, and how accountable they need to be, in my experience, generally doesn't work out as well. <laughs> Just from, you know, a few dozen cases, I guess, <laughs> if you're going to go that far back. <laughs> and, 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 and we're, we're giggling about it because it, it just feels so like it, other provinces have no fault. And, and, and I would assume there's some studies from them and, and from the people because it, it seems to, again, just pretty much complement 
the the province provider in this case icbc like it it, it just seems one-sided yeah i mean saskatchewan would be an example um, of a province that had a no-fault scheme and i don't know exactly why they changed it i suspect uh, because it wasn't as efficient or effective as they had hoped. But they have a hybrid system now, and I know that the Liberal Party in British Columbia actually campaigned uh, a few elections ago on bringing in a system like Saskatchewan had. Um, and they have the option, so a person can choose to be under the no-fault uh, regime or they can choose to be under the tort regime. And in my opinion, I'm not sure why anyone would go into the no-fault regime. The way it was set up is you'd get more benefits up front, but you'd ultimately be undercompensated. If you go in the tort system, you would get less benefit up front, but you would be wholly compensated. It, it's like buying good insurance policy, I guess. Yeah. So they allowed people to do that. And in the literature I read from Saskatchewan, uh, the government said, we're reviewing this every year, and we reserve the right to alter the cost of the insurance depending on what happens. And my understanding is in the several years they've been running this system, they've kept the pricing the same, which I thought was rather interesting. So the Liberals obviously liked that and they campaigned on that. And from what I understood, that was one of their platforms that got the most traction. But ultimately, unfortunately, that didn't uh, win the day. But uh, and we ended up with what we have now. So we're going to leave ICBC for a second, even though that seems to be fertile ground for today's discussion. <laughs> um, you also do public health law. And, and of course, you know, you've seen over the last few years, um, you know, different mandates created by, by the office of the province. And uh, what, let, let's do a, a quick overview, I guess, of, of right now we still have some mandates in place. Can, can you kind of expand on which current mandates that BC has but no other provinces do? In BC, we still have this November 18th uh, order uh, that prohibits healthcare professionals from working in a facility, essentially in a hospital or a long-term care home. So nurses, physicians, are if they have not received two doses of the COVID uh, product, then they're not entitled to, to work in those places. Um, and many people have been fired as a result as well. Um, some are on suspension, like the physicians. Uh, many of the physicians are just not working in the hospital. They may be working in their private practices, um, uh, but uh, they aren't allowed to work in facilities. So, for some reason, British Columbia has held on to that mandate despite, um, I think, overwhelming agreement that two doses of the vaccine uh, does not, uh, there's no difference between an unvaccinated person in terms of infection and transmission and a, a two-dose vaccinated person. So, I mean, Dr. Patty Daly, who's the Chief Medical Health Officer for Vancouver Coastal Health, said that back in February, admitted that. Um, many of the uh, specialists within UBC wrote to their own president at the end of February and said the same thing. Um, you know, our federal government even uh, suspended travel mandates recently, acknowledging that fact. Uh, every other province in the country has acknowledged that fact. Pretty much every country in the world has acknowledged that fact. But for some reason, our government believes that it's still necessary to prohibit these people from working. The, the 
puzzling part is it, that comes at a time also when they are admitting they are chronically understaffed and emergency departments are regularly closing because they don't have staff. And so the primary objective of our public health system obviously is to be sure we have adequate resources to provide health care. And uh, we've got hospitals closing, we've got people being denied or delayed treatment um, because they're short-staffed, and we've got all these capable, well-trained, experienced nurses and doctors who are sitting on the sidelines who would love to come back to work, many of whom who have had COVID and have fully recovered from COVID. And um, so it, it is puzzling. I mean, even the BC Centre for Disease Control uh, February 1st, they published a document on their website saying just what I'm telling you, that there really was no difference between uh, a two-dose vaccinated person and an unvaccinated person. And I know that there was a freedom of information request made by a physician uh, back in the fall that was responded to in February of this year, where they asked, you know, is there any evidence that unvaccinated physicians or healthcare professionals are passing COVID to their colleagues or their patients any more than a vaccinated physician is. And the government wrote back and said, we don't have any information on that. Does it feel like a, I, I, I mean, it, it could be a, a cost savings. Like, I mean, if, if you continue to run understaffed hospitals, that would be a cost savings, I suppose. Um, but it feels like a grudge. It feels like there's a, a battle of wills, and this is just about ego, and I have the I have the big stick, and you don't. That's what it feels like to me. Because uh, anecdotally, if a very good friend of mine, his daughter collapsed. He could not get uh, an ambulance to his residence. They suggested to him, "You really need to bring her down when she's conscious." <laughs> so he brought her down, and. Uh, uh, his wife and daughter sat in the emergency room, didn't even get admitted, but the, the security guard wrote down their name, scribbled it down on a pad, and said, you know, hopefully somebody will see you shortly. The emergency room was packed, and four and a half, five hours later, they just went home because they were just hoping for the best outcome. So, you know, when when you start talking about understaffed, and, and we live in a in a very vibrant community, you know, there's lots of resources here, it seems, and then you peel back this layer on healthcare and, and you feel how vulnerable it really is. So when I see those signs, hire back our heroes, that really has a ripple effect for me because I have children, I have loved ones, and I, I really want to protect them. And if, man, if, if we have people sitting on the sidelines that are just simply not allowed to work, that angers me, actually. Well, when you say it seems like it's a bit of a grudge, I think that, you know, again, I'll just reference Dr. Patty Daly, who was, is the chief public health officer for Vancouver Coastal Health. And in the fall, she was in a meeting with her colleagues that either intentionally or unintentionally was released on YouTube. And in that meeting, Dr. Daly said that the purpose of the vaccine mandates was not essentially for public health. It was to increase vaccination rates. So in other words, the objective of removing rights and freedoms of British Columbians was not necessarily with a public health aim. It was to increase vaccination rates. So at a time where it seems pretty much everyone is admitting vaccination is not effective, at least now, and hasn't been for some time, if it ever was, um, so they're admitting that it's not effective now, yet that is still seems to be the reason why they're preventing it because you can go to Alberta and work 
these health professionals can go to Alberta and work. They can go to Saskatchewan and work, but they can't work here. Um, it's, it's very puzzling. It, it just seems to me, like I said, that we aren't vulnerable. A- again, could it be cost savings, perhaps? Um, could it be, uh, I don't know, ego, grudge? But are, are we getting all the details, I guess? Like, or what, what details is the government sharing with us so we can make an informed decision? Well, in my opinion, the transparency from the beginning has been severely lacking. Um, You may have seen in some other media reports where, for instance, um, a Freedom of Information request uh, secured a number of emails from Dr. Bonnie Henry to some of her colleagues at the BCCDC and elsewhere. And those emails suggested that in January of 2021, the Dr. Bonnie Henry and our government knew very well that there were significant safety concerns regarding the vaccines. And the email exchanges, in my opinion, focused more on how the government was going to make sure they were not implicated in any poor decision-making, rather than concern over the people that were being seriously injured. That was concerning. Um, There's many other examples of where I think the transparency has been very much lacking and attempts to get information from the Freedom of Information Department have been very difficult. They often are delayed, they grant themselves numerous extensions, or they claim that the information is provided in a certain location on a website when it's not, or they uh, say the information is not available. Um, and, and this should be very, um, this should be information that's not uh, in any way, shape or form Uh, something they should have a concern about disclosing. So for instance, they publish all kinds of charts and data on the BC Centre for Disease Control website. That's primarily where you're going to see most of the data. And we've asked numerous times over several months for the raw data that they use to populate those bars and graphs and charts. So they obviously have it, they're using it, they were updating things weekly, and we have been unable to get it and we've been requesting for several months. Other provinces have given that information up as uh, others have obtained it from the Government of Canada and it it does tell a very different picture from what we're being told in the media. Um, I'll give you another example of some concerns over transparency. So in BC, the BC Centre for Disease Control was weekly releasing the number of cases, hospitalizations, ICU admissions and deaths and they were differentiating them between unvaccinated and vaccinated persons. We would get that report every week, and certainly since December, it would give us a monthly snapshot. So you could see a trend. What's trending? How are we doing? You know, where are things going? Um, And the disturbing trend was right from when the vaccines were mandated, uh, every week it would appear that the, the vaccinated cases Uh, hospitalizations, ICU admissions and deaths were increasing and over time it got uh, in the spring here to the point where they were outpacing the unvaccinated and once the cases clearly were disproportionately in the vaccinated population uh, the government decided to stop publishing the cases. Uh, They changed the reporting, this was June 18th and um, as of this morning when I checked all they're telling us now is the they're just telling us the cases you can still get them weekly they no longer tell you whether the person is vaccinated or unvaccinated 
which is probably the most, uh, one of the most important pieces of information we need when we're trying to determine whether our only remaining uh, health mandate is justified. And when it appears to be contradicting everything that everyone else is doing in Canada and around the world, why would you stop telling us that information? Another change they made on April 1st was of this year was instead of including COVID deaths in the COVID death category, they now include all-cause mortality in the COVID death category if you've had a positive lab test for COVID within 30 days. So if you had died in a car accident or died from a gunshot wound or you fell off a building, whatever, if you had a positive lab test for COVID within 30 days, you would be categorized as a COVID death. Interesting. So, so it appears that it's much less clear. Why would we two years into this change the definition to make it less capable for the public to determine what's really going on? That, that's troubling to me. The other thing that I think, and I've heard this spoken of in many other provinces and countries where people are concerned about misleading information, and I think in British Columbia, they determined you were unvaccinated until 21 days past your shot. We know from the Canadian statistics, from the Alberta statistics, and from the statistics from many other countries worldwide, that, uh, that the majority of injuries and deaths that occurred after vaccination occurred within typically 14 days of the vaccine being administered. So all of those injuries and deaths that occurred in those first 21 days in British Columbia were categorized as unvaccinated. We have been trying for several months to get the data so that for the government to tell us how many of those people that you called unvaccinated that became a case, a hospitalization or a death had actually received the vaccine and when had they received it in relation to when they became a case, hospitalization or death. We have been not able to get that information. Alberta accidentally or temporarily published that data around Christmas time last year for about three days and many people downloaded that data and it showed us this. The Canadian data shows the same thing. It doesn't break it down by province. One researcher from the University of Alberta looked at over 150 countries, worldwide government websites, and was able to pull that same data and it's pretty consistent across the globe. But in BC, for some reason, we can't get that and we don't report that and we have this misleading definition. And the definitions, as I've mentioned, seem to be getting more and more misleading. So, you know, we've now changed how we define deaths two years into it. We've now no longer tell you who's vaccinated and unvaccinated in the cases because they were far in becoming disproportionate in the vaccinated population. And this morning when I checked, I believe it was over 90% or over 90% of the deaths in the last, well now they give us a running total, which is the other change. So the running, they used to give us a monthly snapshot. They've now, they've now not done that. It's all gonna be a running total. So you cannot see trends unless you take your own snapshots, right? So you can't see where things are trending, but it's still 90% of the deaths were in the vaccinated. Yet they say only 86% of people are vaccinated. But that's, I don't think that shows us the real trend. That's why they stopped showing us the trends. So that is very disturbing to me because at a time when our government has admitted transparency is so important, we're all trying to make an informed decision about an experimental medical treatment that is still in clinical trials. The clinical trials do not finish until later this year or early next year. So we are the experiment. We're trying to determine, is this safe? Is this effective? And you'd think the government would be happy to share with us the data, but it's been anything but. And as I say, apart from delays in getting the data, now they've also started asking for money 
to give the, to give them the data. And so they want hundreds or thousands of dollars to produce the data because they're being asked by many people for the information. But if they just made it readily available to people, which they could do on their BCCDC site, we wouldn't have to go through freedom of information to get it, right? So, and if I can, I'm, in the United States, give you an example. Um, you know, in the United States, similar requests were made for information from the FDA uh, to get the Pfizer uh, emergency use authorization data that they presented in their application to get approval for the vaccine. And so the FDA and Pfizer opposed that request. They couldn't get it through Freedom of Information, just like we're experiencing here. So they went to court and asked the court and said, we're having trouble getting this through our public agencies. We'd like you to order production of this information. And Pfizer and the FDA argued that they should be given 75 years before they had to produce the information. 75 years. 75 years. Thankfully, the court said, that seems a bit long. Um, we're going to give you eight months. And so as of March 1st, they've had to provide a certain number of documents on the beginning of each month until they've exhausted that. So by the end of the year, we will be given the documents that should have been publicly available that Pfizer used to obtain their emergency use authorization. Now we know from the documents that have been released thus far that it does not line up with what we were being told by our public health officials. So Pfizer knew in their clinical data that the vaccines were not very safe and were not very effective. And in fact, in the first document drop March 1st, there was nine pages of single-spaced severe adverse reactions listed. Nine pages. When I've spoken to physicians here locally about whether they were aware of this information, almost all of them were not. And the information's not easy to get. You actually have to go on the law firm's website to get it. Nobody's publishing it. You'd think everyone would want to know, let's see what they knew. Mm -hmm. I can tell you, I've looked at it, not all of it, I've looked at enough of it to see that it doesn't quite match with what we were being told. So when I see all these other changes in British Columbia to make it less transparent, I see an unwillingness to disclose data. It makes me want to see that information even more. Okay, so let's talk a bit about uh, the reporting because this is all part of you know, really some of your research that you're doing right now. So just give us a, an overview of some of the reporting done on the vaccines. Um, well, uh, in terms of a healthcare professional's obligation to report an adverse reaction to immunization, in British Columbia, our Public Health Act has a reporting regulation. So it's a regulation that's made pursuant to the Public Health Act. And in Section 5 of that regulation, it quite simply and clearly sets out what a healthcare professional's obligations are. So essentially, <clears throat> what we understand many physicians have been told um, by public health officials is that they are not to report an adverse reaction to a vaccine, uh, the COVID vaccine, unless they can definitively say 100% that the injury or death was caused by the vaccine. In fact, our, the law in British Columbia is quite the opposite. Um, the law says that if there is an adverse reaction, whether unexpected, serious, or requires you to seek any medical attention, that there must be a report of the adverse reaction made unless you, you can definitively say it's from another cause. So it's the opposite of what most physicians that I spoke to understood their obligations were. So they were being misinformed 
about what their obligation was. Now again, why is this important for transparency? Well, if they're seeing patients that are having an injection and having a serious reaction or an unexpected reaction, um, if that's reported and the public is aware of it, it's information we should have as we're making our informed consent, whether we'd like to participate in the uh, program or not, or continue to. But that, and I've read a number of reports to the BCCDC, who is the gatekeeper of whether or not this information ever finds its way to Health Canada. And I can tell you that in a number of the reports that I've read, the officers at the BCCDC are not following the public health regulation. They are saying, well, we're not sure what this is or why this severe thing is happening, so we're not going to report it. So that's... Is that a, a recent admission or is that just ongoing? It's only through clients that I have who have disclosed their physician's report of the adverse reaction and then the response they've received from the BCCDC. So that would not be public. Uh, massive concern. Yeah. So as you work through this information, are you, are you getting the impression, and I guess I'm, I'm asking for an opinion, but... Is is there something um, like, I guess, a lawsuit on the horizon for for all of this information? I think there will be. Um, I, I'm not aware of a lawsuit specifically trying to obtain some of these freedom of information requests, although that is something that uh, myself or others may need to do if we can't get the information uh, voluntarily from the government. Um, <clears throat> there certainly are a number of lawsuits in British Columbia that are in the BC Supreme Court right now regarding these mandates and the government's COVID-19 policies. Um, I'm aware of four Supreme Court cases that have just been, uh, I guess, ordered by the court and agreement by the parties, I believe, to be heard at the same time. And those cases are going to proceed as they are scheduled right now, November 28th to December 8th. Um, I know plaintiff's counsel were hoping for earlier dates, um, but it looks like right now that's where it's scheduled. Now, one of the cases is you may have heard about in the media, um, and forgive me, but I cannot remember the name of the plaintiff because it's quite a long name. They're a society, um, and the government challenged whether they had standing to bring the action and this was in the media recently and the court uh, disagreed with the government and found the plaintiffs did have standing so that case is going to proceed. My understanding is the government has decided to appeal that decision and they're still going to challenge the public standing to try and get that lawsuit kicked out. So whether that lawsuit joins the other three November 28th will, will depend upon what happens with that appeal. They may end up having to deal with the appeal first. But those would be, uh, those will be very interesting cases. Um, one of them uh, is on behalf of some medical professionals and is alleging that we are no longer in a state of emergency and therefore these mandates are ultra virus the government, in other words, out of their jurisdiction to make at this point. Um, it's unfortunate that we have to wait till the end of November to have that heard. Um, I understand one of the other cases is primarily focused on uh, medical exemptions or just exemptions generally. So people that work at home have contact with no one that are not allowed to work if they don't get vaccinated. Seems that, you, I, I would think one would question, is that a public health policy? 
how does that uh, assist in public health if you work from your living room and have no contact with anyone? I think uh, that's one of the cases. And then um, I'm not as familiar with some of the other, with uh, the other two, but. Um, so what what does standing mean though? Like what, what what are you trying to? What are they saying is, you know, what is off about the standing? So because it's a society, it's not an individual per se that's been wronged. So they're saying we are bringing this case on behalf of a group or an a association, group or association. Or similar to what the trial lawyers uh, sometimes do, and, and and the government recently challenged the trial lawyers on whether they had standing in certain cases, and the trial lawyers were successful. So it's a procedural way that the government can try to avoid having to deal with the merits of the case. Right. Are we still in a state of? Are, are we still in an emergency? Yes. Really? That's the only way that that November eighteenth order can remain in effect is that we are in a public health emergency. So in British Columbia's eyes, we are still, under the Public Health Act, in a state of emergency. Yet, all the restrictions have been removed pretty much, including the vaccine passports. We can go to a hockey game, the mall, to church, to a gym, to you know wherever we want to go, but a doctor, and a doctor can see their patients in their private clinic face-to-face, but can't work by telehealth if it's providing something to the hospital. So one just has to question, when you were asking earlier, this seems like a grudge, because I'm, I am having trouble connecting the dots between how that fosters public health, which is, and how we are in a state of emergency when we, pretty much everyone's acknowledging that, um, again, unvaccinated and two-dose vaccinated people have no difference in terms of infection or transmission. And in fact, I saw a recent study out of Israel which debunks the suggestion that the vaccine is actually reducing hospitalizations. And in fact, our own BC data would suggest that before we stopped showing us the trends, that the, the hospitalizations were increasing every week in the vaccinated and decreasing in the unvaccinated. Now, many scientists I've read and heard and peer-reviewed research I've read suggest that natural immunity is the reason that the unvaccinated are, are not cases, hospitalizations and deaths. That's declining because natural immunity has always been stronger than a man-made product, right? right? And so now most people have been exposed to the virus and probably have immunity. Many people have had their antibody tests done and can show that they have full antibodies to the virus. So, you know, again, one has to question why that's happening. Another thing that's happening that many people may not be aware of is that these physicians that are currently on the sidelines that are itching to get back to work and help out and who were on the front lines at the very beginning and who all had COVID at the beginning because they were on the front lines, um, they, their health authorities, all the health authorities in British Columbia are trying to cancel their privileges. So the health order says, if you choose not to be vaccinated, we're gonna give you two choices. You can be vaccinated and you can work in the hospital. You can choose not to be vaccinated and you can't exercise those privileges while this order is in place. So some physicians have said, you know, I'm not going to get it. I want to wait and see what's going to happen. And, or I've had COVID or I have a medical reason why I can't. So I'm not going to do that, but I'll work in my private practice if they have one. Some don't, some are completely out of work. Um, And um, so the health order does not require that their privileges are canceled. Because when, when that happens, that's like a disciplinary move. And then that gets sent to the College of Physicians and Surgeons. The college could choose to discipline them and remove their licenses entirely so they could not practice as a doctor here or anywhere at a time when we are 
chronically short of doctors, okay? So the, this, this is going on right now, and, and the health authorities are trying to cancel the privileges of all these physicians. When they're not being asked to, even by Dr. Bonnie Henry, or the health orders. They've taken it upon themselves to say, well, because you cannot go into a hospital because you're complying with the health order, because you cannot, because you're prevented, we think we should punish you with the harshest punishment we have at our disposal, which is canceling your privileges. And these physicians have been fighting for their lives, for their privileges, for several months, going through the onerous process that is our public health system to defend themselves, to say, why would you cancel me? I'm abiding by the order. I may even still be servicing hundreds of patients a week that you will have no one to look after them if you cancel me. Why would you not let me continue? You've admitted you have no evidence that I'm passing anything to anyone. You've admitted that. You have nothing. So why are you pursuing this? So I'll let you or your listeners make their own judgment about why that's happening. Because so, it is puzzling. Because isn't public health, isn't, isn't the very definition of public health to make us healthy? And versus taking people out of circulation that could potentially diagnose, treat, help, assist. And even, yeah, and some of these doctors are seeing many, many patients. And a lot of these doctors are at the top of their field. Some of them work in remote locations where they're the only doctor of that specialty for miles and miles. And they're, they've had COVID or whatever. So they're assisting uh, doctors. They often get called. These are our senior practitioners. Other doctors and nurses are calling them for advice. But we're preventing, you know, I mean, they're prevented from going into the hospital now by the health order, which again, the only ones in Canada that I'm aware of. Um, but why would you take it a step further and say, look, we acknowledge, we agree with you that you'd like to come to work, but you can't because you're, you've chosen door number two, which we said were both good choices, okay? And, and one thing, and so why would we take it a step further and punish you and discipline you and risk losing you altogether? Because Adrian Dix, our Minister of Health, said in November on television that it was he, he was working very hard with the colleges to try to tie this vaccination to licensing. So in other words, if you don't comply we're going to take away your license. Now, he said that on, on the news. He, so far, we haven't heard anything more about that. But these physicians are at great risk if they're disciplined and they get their license cancelled by the board of directors of the health authority. It is they're obligated within seven days to tell the college, hey, we disciplined this physician. We've cancelled their privileges. Well, the physician's going to go, well, what are we going to do with this? Well, given what our minister of health promised that he was working very hard at, there's some risk there. And, and so why, why, why would that be? And it's quite puzzling. Anecdotally, I heard about two oncologists on, in the island uh, around Victoria who were uh, non-vaccinated and they uh, left. Like they said, okay, well, we're kind of in demand across the world, so we will go wherever we choose other than BC. And to my knowledge, uh, they have not been replaced because oncologists are tougher to get specialty and all that kind of thing. So part, part of me is thinking that this is, uh, it, and, and it goes back to, we're the only province still under this emergency measures, public health. And, and it just, 
my jaw is is kind of hitting the ground here a little bit because it seems like when you're the only province, there has to be some sort of cause of concern to to maintain this this uh, facade, I guess, and and that's what it feels like to me. It's it's difficult because it, you know the ability to ask questions of our government of uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry is very very limited. Any of the town halls that I've been present in, if a question comes that isn't preferred, that person is usually cut off and not answered. And so people have been writing, I'm aware, uh, I've written to the Attorney General uh, asking questions about why certain things are happening. Um, and, you know, there's no answers. And when they're asked to provide us with the science, Provide us with the science that you're relying on that you say supports your position that we are in a state of public health emergency in British Columbia today. The usual response I've received is, we're just following the science. It's publicly available and we don't want to debate it with you. So when I reiterate, I'm not asking you to debate anything with me. I'm just asking you to share with me what you say you're looking at that justifies your current stance. There's no answer. And I am assuming that if there was a, a really good peer-reviewed published study or if they had really good data that supported it, they would have it up on their website. They'd Quickly. be talking about it on the news. But instead we just get this blanket assertion that we're following the science. Or, and, and that, again, it comes back to the transparency piece. And I think their desire to get everyone vaccinated because they've admitted that's their desire and that they're trying to take away rights, freedoms, privileges to encourage or increase vaccination uptake, as Dr. Daly said, um, it would seem to me that not being transparent creates an, an unwillingness. It increases the suspicion of the public and they become less willing to follow your suggestion or mandate to do something. If you, if you think it's truly good, then it would seem you would have no issue sharing the foundation for your opinion. Mm -hmm. And when we try to find it and you keep changing definitions and make it cloudier and cloudier two years in. And, and when you keep pulling in versus, as you said, be more transparent and, and with this, uh, these requests of freedom of information and, and just basically when you do get information, it might be redacted or, or anything else. Those are all warning signs for to make an informed decision. And I, I you know, I don't want to put on any tinfoil hat or anything, but it, it when when you start breaking out, if it could be anything, like it, if we went away from health, because there's lots of emotions when it comes to health, but any other department, if you kept asking for information that was not given to you and, and continually push back, you start to have more questions than answers. I think a lot of the public starts going, well, wait a second. If, if you want me to take an action, I'm, I'm going to need as much information as you have so that I can, I can help make a healthy choice. And when they don't get that information and they're just given basically a, a constant beating of the drum narrative that we need uptake and we need that 86 to get to 100%, I don't know. I, I'm. I. I feel like you know. We. We. Uh, I'm going to use your word. I'm puzzled. 
I puzzled. <laughs> so anyway, we'll 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 take a we'll take a quick break because uh, yeah, I'm, I, I got to pick up my jaw. <laughs> 